1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Okay, everybody, hunting season is well underway. Some of you might have already found success. Some might still be searching for it. And if you're like me, maybe this time of year is just the pinnacle of a year-round obsession. Anyway, about it, as hunters, we all need to do our part as outdoor enthusiasts. By now, all of you are aware of the amalgamation between Hunters 4 BC and SCI. These guys and gals are so dedicated to the wildlife in this province that they're spending their spare time fighting to ensure that this hunting season and hunting seasons to come, you have something to hunt. But they need your help. I myself am a proud member, and I strongly urge you all, if you're not already a member, join today. I want you guys to go to www.bcinteriorsci.ca. And if you're not in BC, don't sweat it. SCI is a worldwide organization that advocates for hunters everywhere. I want to welcome you all to episode 7 of the Focus Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Toy. Today I'm joined by Reg Wales. Reg is the technical field advisor for Vortex Optics. He's a former member of the Canadian Armed Forces, a devoted husband and father of two. In my opinion, Reg is not only a stud on the range, but he's a legit badass. Reg, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, so Reg, you and I touched briefly on your background. Like myself, you grew up in a small town, but can you tell us a bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in uh, in just a small town uh, in between Kingston and Belleville, Ontario. Small town, I'm talking, you know, originally it was about 1,200 people. It's not that now. It's it's grown to be about 15,000, so still considered to be a small town in some places. But uh, yeah, I lived in a rural community, uh, grew up on a farm, worked for farmers ever since I was a kid, as long as I can remember. And uh, basically it. Um, it's funny because you grow up, you move away, and you always seem to come back home and uh, back in the small town again and, and actually loving it. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. That's one thing about a small town. I grew up myself. I grew up on the coast, a uh, small town. I, I never made it back there just because of the weather. I think it rains there about you know 350 days of the year, so I never made it back. I'm in <laughs> Kelowna now. The weather's a little nicer. Yeah, there's, it, it's great because just everybody knows everyone, right? It's hometown feeling. So. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that's one thing I miss. Now, you served with the Canadian Armed Forces. 
What age did you enlist with the CAF, and kind of what was your motivation that drove you into service? Oh, man. Uh, I enlisted when I was 17. Like, I had a birthday in May, and then by June, I was doing basic. So um, it all started back when I was a kid. For whatever reason, I've always had an interest in, in the military. Um, when I was 12, I joined Sea Cadets and did a summer with them. I learned real quick that the water's not for this cat. I want to be boots on the ground. And I always enjoyed shooting out on the farm, taking care of critters and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, the military just made sense. When I was a kid, all I wanted to do is shoot rifles. And it was guns, girls, and blowing things up. So it had all those three things. So why not sign up and go for it? So yeah. when I turned 17, uh, I basically just got my parents, convinced them, kind of almost the wool over their eyes and said, hey, it's not a big deal. Are we all right? And off I went. And they signed me in, and about a month later, I was down at basic. And I didn't do a long stint in the military because I ended up getting uh, injured overseas and ended my career. But, yeah, I was in it to win it, definitely for the whole 20-plus. I kind of figured that was where I needed to be. Yeah. So what was your specific role in the Canadian Armed Forces? I was just a ground pounder. I was infantry. That's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be boots on the ground, get the skills. I had plans of uh, remustering to a weapons tech to do some type of... Uh, in a position of that uh, that sort uh, later on. But, uh, no, I, I just wanted to be on the front lines. I wanted to be with the boys, uh, that camaraderie. Canada was not involved in a, in a war at that time, and um, we were doing a lot of peacekeeping missions, and mostly in Yugoslavia would be the most hostile place at that time. Yeah. So uh, it gave me, so it gave me some, uh, some experience, and that's what I was looking for, right? Looking for a little adventure, and went to Yugoslavia and definitely got some adventure there. Very eye-opening. That was back in the early 90s, so... Back home in Canada, you know, we kind of thought, people kind of think that peacekeeping are, you know, we're handing out chocolate bars and stuff. But no, that was the farthest thing from the truth. Yeah, yeah, I bet, man. No, in my opinion, anybody who serves is, is legit, man. One thing I've always been drawn to myself is, you know, sort of adversity, facing challenges and just trying to overcome them. You know, thinking back, one thing I would have loved to do is to try a boot camp just to see if I got what it takes. Can you kind of just, like, walk us through, you know, what boot camp was like? I know a lot of guys, you know, they watch movies and stuff, and everybody has their opinion on boot camp. Is, is that what you guys call it? Is it actually called boot camp? Uh, so basic training is basic just that. Training. Everyone in the team, yeah, everyone in the team forces, no matter what branch you go to, uh, we all start off with the basic fundamentals. You know, we're all taught the basics of rank structures, marching, basic marksmanship skills, and everyone needs to shoot a rifle. No matter if you're a you're a cook or an infantier, doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. Yeah. And then we all branch off and do our own thing. So we have military occupations. So mock, you know, and then you go off be an infantier, you go off and yeah, be a cook or whatever you want to do. So yeah, basic is just that. It's basic gives you the basic skills to become a soldier, and then you branch off and do a specialized training. For myself, it, it was infantry. That's where I wanted to go. And I got to to do some pretty cool stuff. My time in the nice thing is, uh, again, shooting has always been my interest, and then. Even when I was a kid, you know, did the basic stuff and then went on to do uh, small arms coaching courses and machine gunner courses and all that kind of stuff. So if it had anything that went bang, I was all over it. That's where I wanted to be. In regards to shooting skills in the in the service, like the service just gives you that. The service gives you the basics. It's funny because when I look back at my time in the service and I get asked these kinds of questions is, you know, did you learn everything in the military? And in all fairness to the military, uh I learned more as a civilian than I ever did in the, in the service with shooting. And it's, it's, it's one of those things, right? It's just, you always want to continue to learn. And in the military, you're taught what your section commanders or whoever's teaching you what they've learned from their, their previous instructors and so on. So things move very slow in the service. Whereas a civilian, 
you can stay on top of the current and latest in, um, techniques. And some of the best shooters in the world are civilians, so there's great, great things to learn from them. The military was a great start, great start to give me the basics, to get me going. Even after I was hurt, that's, I just kept growing and kept learning. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, so fast forward in a bit, 1994, I guess you survived a service-ending injury, um, like you said, in Yugoslavia there. So you spent a few years in and out of hospital, and now you're with Vortex Optics. Can you kind of just... Tell us how you got involved with Vortex and sort of what your role with Vortex Optics is. Yeah, it uh, it's kind of by chance, actually. So as a civvy now, I've been teaching firearm safety training for PAL and our PAL courses for a lot of years and uh, in hunter education programs. So here in Ontario, Vortex Canada at the time, I didn't realize, but a fellow came through with his son, taught his son hunter ed and firearm safety, and uh, he worked for Vortex Canada as the Ontario sales rep, Peter Ray. So Pete and I got talking, and, he's, and uh, we got talking about optics. And he said, let's go out on the day on the range. I'll show you a few things with the optics. I was like, right on. And then we went out in the range, and, and uh, it turned out I kind of taught him a few things. And he kind of took notice and said, hey, man, you need to come work for us. So he set up a meeting and went back and talked to the owner. He said, man, you got to meet this guy. And I went out to lunch with the owner, and he said, yeah, I'm going to give you a job as a pro staffer. And then uh, about three weeks later it turned into something different they're like now we can't let you go man we got use you here we need to now start some type of a position for you and then they decided to call it tactical field advisor and so i'm that's where i am today i uh i kind of look at things in a different light the whole scope thing i kind of figured out quite early in life when i was just a kid shooting groundhogs and and coyotes across fields and stuff like that uh with really the old steel tasco scopes uh, back in the day. Yeah. And uh, so I kind of figured coming even into the military, I just figured people knew what I knew in regards to optics. And when I joined the service back in the early 90s, it was, you know, we didn't even transition over to the C-79 Alcan scope. I was running iron sights on the C-7. And later on, we got into the C-79 Alcan. And when I was on doing some training with it, when it first was phased in, we were on the range. And my, even my section commanders and the guys that were running the optic to teach it, they weren't really up to speed on it. Within about 10 minutes, I had it figured out. And in the end, I was taking control of our training for our unit. So so scopes have really come a long ways in my training to start when I was younger. And it kind of grew me where I am today. And when Vortex came a-calling, uh, it just made me realize, especially going to events such as SHOT Show and uh, different events that we have even here in Canada, talking with uh, whether law enforcement or the civilian side, it's an eye-opener because I didn't realize I had a whole lot that different that I can offer. But it turned out that maybe I know a thing or two that could help somebody. And, and they picked up on it and gave me a job. So it's all good. It's uh, Yeah. That's it's a awesome. good job, and I, lo- and I love talking to guys and girls and, and helping them out. And you know, I'm not curing cancer by any means, so pretty simple stuff. We just need to pass on the information, and hopefully, I, c- I can do that. Right. Well, that's awesome. How long have you been with Vortex now? I think this is my seventh year. Oh yeah. With uh, with, with Vortex Canada. Yeah. So Vortex Canada is the Canadian distributor for Vortex Optics, which is out of uh, Wisconsin. Carnival, Wisconsin. So we're basically a, kind of think of us as part of the family. We're here in Vortex Canada. We work so closely. But the beautiful thing about working with such an, a great organization that's a family-run organization is that they take care of you. And things that I need or I want to grow and learn, whether I do it over the phone or I jump on a plane or whatever and get my butt down to Vortex, they look right after you. And any questions I have in, in learning about optics, I'm, I'm in with the right people. So the knowledge that I've grown or I've obtained lately over the years, I, I must give them credit because they, 
they really helped me along. Well, that's awesome, man. So I got this article here. It says uh, Team Vortex wins gold at Argyle Cup Sniper Challenge. Can you explain to us what that is, what the Argyle Challenge is? Yeah, that's actually a pretty cool event. That's like Christmas for me. What it is is uh, an event for current and ex-serving police and military snipers that are at a certain level. They come together, and it's actually held here in Ontario with uh, at Milken uh, Training Center with uh, Keith Cunningham and Linda Miller. So they have about 700 acres, and it's a it's an actual operational course that you go on, and the event is just one day. Uh, but it uses all your skills, all your skills as a, as a sniper, or, or as a marksman, and then some. You're doing navigation, uh, you're doing observation, you're doing a lot of long-range precision shooting. There's just so many different elements to it. I believe there's 10 stages to it, uh, ambush stages, water crossing stages. The list goes on and on. The beautiful thing that I really like about it, because it separates the rock stars from the groupies, it really makes you use all your skills, because we're not... For the most part, we're not shooting on a on a metered range where you're having targets that are marked or steel targets that people are having all t- sorts of time to play with. Uh, we're hiking through the woods. There is one element that is on the range, but for the most part, you're actually you're out in the wilderness. You're in the Canadian wilderness, yeah. and you're having field targets that you have to hit without no markers. There's no wind flags. There's no nothing. It's just a target that's presented to you at a distance that you don't know, and you hammer it. Yeah, uh, so it's, cool. it's a really, really, really cool event, and it brings the best shooters. Like we, <laughs> yeah, we hear about it all the time. Like people talking, or you see it on in the articles or on uh, the internet. Just how really good our marksmen here in Canada is, and our programs. And this event really highlights that. Just how talented and how much talent we have here in Canada. For people in the marksmanship uh, role, uh, really excellent shooters. But again, the Argyle is something that you may have an excellent marksman uh, on the range, but they may be just a little lacking in a certain area. So what it does, it also at the end of the day, when we look back at it and come together collectively as a group, even though we're competing against each other in teams of two, it's a training event. Really, we're able to identify our strong and our weak points. And then when you go back, when those people leave and they go back to their units, or their police services, they're able to work on those and improve those. And that's what it's about. The shooting community, whether you're active or you're not active or retired uh, in this area, in the law enforcement area, in military, is that we're always trying to advance and get better at, at our skill set. And the Argyle Cup is just one of those things that really puts, you know, the boots to the pavement. It, it either you, do, you can get involved and you do it, and you do it well, or it highlights where you really need to work on it. And, we're all we all need areas where we need to improve, but I've been really fortunate. I've competed. I think we're into now. I think this is my. I just had my fifth or my sixth year. Uh, be my sixth year, and I've won the marksmanship trophy four times. I missed year before last because I was involved in a motor vehicle accident with a head con- with a concussion. So that's kind of a damper in my shooting abilities. And then I came back last year, and then I won it with my with my with my shooting partner Mike Brake from Brake Tactical Training Solutions. Right. So Mike is uh, Mike's an ex copper that uh, was a sniper, fantastic guy. Most of the people listening to this will know the name or know of Mike, and uh, so he he too is an instructor at Milken. So he's my partner. Yeah, we totally rocked it last year. It was phenomenal. We did. We excelled at every every stage. If it was there and we could see it, we were hitting it. Where we fell short, like we won the the gold medal and the trophy for the championship portion again, but uh, we were very close to to winning the actual Argyle Cup. What kept us back was our overall time. Oh, and yeah. uh, so 
that just comes down to a little bit more physical fitness and we spend a little bit too much time on one of the stages, the observation stages, but otherwise that we pick it up the next time and I'm hope we come home with the overall trophy. It'd be nice. Yeah. So how does that work? You guys got two years, what one guy shooting specifically, or you guys alternate shooting or, or how does that work? So we work in teams just like a sniper pair would in, in a real world operational setting. So you got to keep in mind this, this whole, the whole idea or the, the premise to this competition is to take you out of your element and put you in a situation maybe that some people are not familiar with. So yeah, you're in teams of two. Uh, one's going to be a dedicated precision rifle and the other guy's going to be armed with uh, an AR star rifle. Yeah. We, we're carrying uh, pistols, whatever other gear we need. So what we do is you start off at a start time and you've got 10 stages that you need to complete. Basically, it's a timed event as well. And at each stage, you have a range master that's going to indicate what you need to do at that specific stand and you need to accomplish it and move on. There's no one holding your hand. It's just basically you need to go to point A to point B and, and so on. Map and compass. Uh, we do a lot of uh, that kind of thing too, as well as, as GPS. The one thing that's really cool about this event is that it shows the limitations of what we have for gear to work with. In today's society, we want everything instant, right? There's just instant gratification. You don't want to put the time in about learning about maps and compasses. Everyone relies on GPS. And when we're using our equipment in the, in the real world, things fail, such as GPS. Don't They don't like extreme weather or overcast or whatnot, and then you don't get a signal, so you don't have that to work with. Same for rangefinders too. They have a lot of problems. So you got to learn skills on how to use the reticle, uh, whether judging target size, uh, ranging targets and hitting targets, you name it, you got to get those skills. So you're, you're in teams of two and you rely on each other. But again, for the most part, precision guy is going to be your sniper and the other guy is going to be your number two. He's going to be your spotter and he'll watch for impacts and give you all the information you need to do and you work back and forth and Hopefully you're successful. You know, we, we think the, the sniper, the precision shooter is, is kind of the guy, the main guy, but anyone that's spent any time on the, on the long gun banging away, uh, at distance and precision, they know darn well that the number two is the heart and soul of it. So, uh, the success of our, our team goes to our spotter. Uh, fantastic, very knowledgeable. And, uh, yeah, Mike's the man. He's, uh, he's got it going on. Yeah, yeah, I bet, man. So, what kind of what kind of shots do you like? What what's the typical shot in a competition like that? Well, that one's to keep it realistic for law enforcement purposes, uh, and some and we do have military that also uh, participate. So they try to keep it under a thousand meters for the most part, and we we use body steel body targets that we need to hit. So you you do have a, a decent sized target, basically a man sized torso uh, to shoot from. And, and a hit on target is what you need just to put the target down. But uh, good center hits is what you're looking for. So yeah, we try to keep it. They try to keep it under a thousand meters to keep it realistic for operational use, especially for law enforcement. All other targets too, right? We have one section that is where we we win the uh, marksmanship trophy, and not only because we hit everything that we shoot at down on all the other targets on the stages, but we seem to excel really well. We do a lot of practicing, or I do a lot of dry firing and practice for the event beforehand because there is a lot of different things like for instance the the rundown on the marksmanship section on on stage three is if you can kind of picture running from the 600 to the 300 and so you get up to the 600 mound you have a minute to engage your target with five rounds and then the target goes down and then it goes back up so you need to be down on the 500 meter mound in a minute to get ready to put rounds down range so that means you're going down dropping to the prone and then targets will go up, go down and they're, they're moving. They're not, it's not for the faint at heart. You, you got to have your, your act together and it's very, very quick. 
And then when you, as you advance, we have moving targets at 400. So you actually have a, a target that's moving. We have a high value target that you have to identify and shoot in the head and get uh, right between the eyes, like in the basically apricot. Um, so it was a very small window for uh, for air on that one. That's one of my funnest, the fun one that I really like because you're already at a wind. You're huffing down the range. You're moving quickly. You're thinking about everything you need to be thinking about in the marksmanship side of things. And then at that point, you need to identify the target. You need to make that, bring everything and slow your heart rate down. Everything's going to be calmed down to make that final small precision shot. And that's where that's where it's at. Yeah, so, that yeah, sounds so intense, I, man. <laughs> I could, oh, it's awesome. It's, it's To me, like again, it's like Christmas time. I know my uh, my partner, Mike, uh, Mike and I, we're on the same thing. It's the highlight of our year. You know, everyone's geared up for Christmas and holidays. Man, I'm thinking, like, when's the next time we're going back to do this? And uh, it also, for an older guy like myself, I'm, I'm crouching 50 here, and I'm I'm going up against young guys that are in their mid-20s. There's something to both that. It just, you know, yeah. it makes you feel good to think that you still Especially you still when you're schooling it. them. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't want to, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say schooling them, but uh, it feels good to drop the hammer and, and know that the round's going where it needs to go. And uh, at the end of the day, you're able to walk walk away with the grand prize. So, But in the, in the real world, you know, bullet holes, they don't lie. So you just need to do what you need to do to put the bullet where it needs to go. And yeah. uh, the beautiful thing about shooting is it's it's science, man. It's all about science. Yeah. It's all about body control and education and learning. And I was I was just horrible in school, and I was I didn't want anything to do with school. Yeah, I can um, relate to that. And especially with math, right? But if my math teacher back in the day, if she would have said, "Hey, you know, Reg, if you learn trigonometry and all this kind of stuff, you're going to be able to hit little tiny targets at distance." Man, I wouldn't skip as much class as I did. So <laughs> no doubt. Well, that's uh, that's pretty cool, and that I mean, a thousand thousand meters is that's quite the shot. I you know, I, I myself this year I, I had my longest uh, successful shot ever on a goat, and it was four hundred two yards away uphill a little bit. But I thought that was pretty good. I I couldn't even imagine a thousand meter shot. That's that's intense, especially at moving targets <laughs> and actual cutouts of of humans and stuff. And moving moving targets at four hundred meters, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, like you finger wind and, and whatnot. The the thing is, when we speak about hunting, like these types of things make great for for training. Realistically, it's not gonna it's not the norm by any means for law enforcement. Most majority of any encounters they have is well under a hundred meters, but when we think about hunting, because I'm a hunter too, I love participating in, in really honing my skills for shooting because as a hunter, I want to take that ethical shot. And I can honestly say I've never harvested an animal over, I don't think it was over 400 yards, um, usually well within, especially here in Ontario. But it's nice to know that you have those skills because if you get a little longer shot, such as a coyote across an open hayfield, and you do see it, and you pull up, you know that you have the knowledge to be able to make a clean kill and hit the target. And uh, on large game like deer, again, for those people that are listening to this podcast, getting out there as a hunter, it shouldn't be pulling your rifle out, you know, day before and going out and doing a quick sight and make sure everything's good to go and find out now the optic's not working uh, or you got a problem. It should be something that's carried on throughout the whole year because these types of skills 
are perishable. To be able to get out and behind the rifle and hone those skills as a, as a hunter, it gives you that next level of confidence in your abilities. And then you just need to go out and do your part, you know, to get within a reasonable range that you can harvest the animal. I really Definitely. suggest anyone listening, anyone listening as a hunter is, you know, don't wait until right before hunt season to get out there. It needs to be something that's practiced all the way throughout the year. Yeah. And drop down to a caliber that's easy to be able to shoot so you can enjoy it and hone your skills. And uh, and today, as a hunter, we're seeing, and as a competitor, we're seeing now such a, such an interest in the rimfire shooting, such as the the action shooting, is the rimfire precision shooting series, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, those are fantastic to watch people get involved with because it's educating, it's showing you what really you need to do to hit the target, even if it's a smaller distance. And then you get out there hunting. It, that really just translates into the field with a center fire. No, I, I think that's one thing that a lot of hunters don't do is they just don't do the diligence and, and get out and practice. And uh, like I said, that go trip I went on this year, it was my first go trip, and I started shooting in May, and I was shooting at distances of under 500 yards. But I was just practicing it uphill, downhill. You know, I was going out to clear cuts, and mm-hmm. I, I practiced that. And I, man, I must have shot well over 300 rounds in preparation for that hunt just because you know i didn't want to get out there and then you know like you said you go out and you shoot your gun the, the day before to make sure it's sighted in you know and there's a lot of different elements you have taken into consideration i mean you know with hunting you know a lot of like western hunting is you're going to experience physical and mental fatigue and you know that's one thing that you have to take into consideration as well because that's gonna and and not to mention you know with that particular goat hunt there's elevation to consider so you, you definitely need to do your homework and uh, take time and not only learn your optics but learn uh, what your ammo can do and so that's a good point it's definitely uh definitely have to take time and go to the range and and uh and work on your shooting well well in advance yeah yeah it's, it's good to hear that because i wish i would hear more from that from hunters it's um so my job as a technical field advisor at vortex canada speaking to whether going to shows or speaking to, to guys and girls on the phone and that's the biggest thing i see is just the knowledge and, and you know going out on a sheep hunt or hunting in the mountains or anything on elevation that's not for the faint of heart you need to get some experience and to do that you really need to get behind the rifle uh, what's frustrating on my end is that I think too many people just rely on electronic devices today. Uh, you can have all the best gear, uh, all the best electronic devices, but you got to get behind the rifle, you got to get behind the firearm, and you got to do the time. You got to yeah. do the dry firing drills. You need to go ahead and, and get that practice of working with elevations and what, like you said, what actually happens to the bullet um, at different elevations and at different closing angles. And Using devices such as laser rangefinders that account for the, the horizontal corrective distances for the cozying angle to give you the direct and the, the correct distance really helps, but you need to be exposed to that. So just to, to dream up that you're going to do a, a goat hunt one morning and go out there the next and think you're going to get it done, you, you're not going to be successful. And, yeah. and and again, ethically, you owe it to the animal too, right? You really oh, do as a hunter is uh, you don't want to drop this thing on the side of a mountain and rolling it down and wounding it, and it's laying down there. Like, that's a horrible way. So you want to make the the shot count. And that goes right back at, again, doing as a hunter, get back and get off the couch and get out on the range and get onto that rifle and start putting rounds down range and taking it slow. And today, everything is fast. We need to slow it down and really start to work on those fundamentals and start to really understand what's taking place. And, and, and again, understanding your optic, because today, just what everyone's running with an optic device on their rifle, that's going to be the device that steers the bullet to the target. So understanding what that optic can do 
and also starting to learn to speak, I'm going to say scope, or start to speak its language so you can see whether you're looking through it. It's telling you what you need to do to your body. It's telling you what you need to do with the rifle scope to change the point of impact on the target. So a lot of learn, lot to learn, and I wish yeah. more and more hunters would get out there and participate and don't be so worry about uh about shooting just get behind it and even dry firing yeah dry firing is uh man dry dry firing is like the best uh way to train because it costs zero bucks it gives you instant feedback on what you're doing correct or what you're doing improper yeah and you know that can when you're talking about doing your your hunt and you, if you're doing some dry fire just even the marksmanship principles really they really cement that in there for you doing dry fire and one thing I know is when I suggest, you know, at home, practice dry firing. If you find you're flinching or you feel that you're flinching before the shot, then just dry fire. I don't know where it came from, but a lot of guys are, are under this impression that, you know, shooting a center a center fire or dry firing a center fire rifle is bad for your rifle. So Yeah, that's and that's, and that's actually quite false, right? Because if we think about logically, if you don't have a cartridge in the chamber on a center fire, your fire can just... It's falling on nothing, uh, a dead yeah. chamber. There's nothing there that's making contact with. So you can physically dry fire uh, your rifle to the cows come home on a center fire, and it's not going to do it any harm. If you want, like like I know I make up dummy training rounds because I want to actually cycle the action and make sure I'm, I'm completely pulling my bolt to the rear and practice loading, changing mags, the whole nine yards. So you can easily buy snap caps, dummy ammo, and then run through it, and uh, it's not. You know, some guys like to do that, and but if you're just running on an empty chamber, just dry fire. Yeah. Um, the beautiful thing about dry firing, and when I'm when I'm teaching, whether I'm teaching the OTOP program here or I'm doing any type of marksmanship training, is that even though as a hunter you're most likely going to be in a standing position or a kneeling position, uh, most likely in a standing if you're here in Ontario and you're shooting whitetail or something, so it's quite close. But to do these types of practices, I really try to get the students into a prone position because it is the most stablest position to be in. And if you're going to zero your rifle, you should be doing it in the prone position or a steady position. And in the field, there is no desk. There is no shooting benches. You got ground. So you might as well get used to shooting in the prone. Uh, the beautiful thing about the prone position is if you're dry firing, where you can really see the minimal movement. And what I try to tell the students what it was passed on to me years ago by a mentor of mine is that basically think of the reticle if you were to dry fire in a target if you were to squeeze the trigger wherever that reticle lands after the, the trigger is squeezed and the firing pin goes forward and snaps forward that's where the bullet will impact your target as long as you have a properly zero firearm so it's almost like taking a visual snapshot every time you dry fire where that bullet is impacting so what you need to do to correct it so again, that instant feedback and to get that muscle memory in the finger or the eyes, get the proper sight picture, it's going to come with a little bit of time and dry firing is it's the way to go. It's good we clarified that because, you know, I, even today I still have that, I still have that debate with, with friends and family members. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so moving into your book, uh, The Ultimate Optics Guide to Rifle Shooting, uh, which in my opinion, every hunter should own a copy. You know, I've been shooting for a long time and man if i would have had this book when i started to shoot definitely would have saved me a lot of time and ammo <laughs> yeah. can you tell us about the book and and kind of what your motivation was uh to write it yeah for sure the um that book was my first attempt to put pen to paper really to get out to the public so after i was i got my life back in order and went back to school i went back to school for policing and while i was involved with going to college for policing i spent a lot of time on the range still teaching and whatnot on the civilian side 
And some of the local police services around would reach out to me and, and ask me questions about optics. I kind of got a little rep, a small rep around our area uh, for being kind of the scope guy. So they'd reach out to me. I'd spend days on the range with the guys. And then I'd write things out on paper, scratch them out or print something out and hand it off to them. And they're like, man, you got to you got to put this down in some type of a book or something that we can just keep with us. Like it's, you know, get it out there. So that was kind of where it started. And then about we're getting close to 10 years now, about nine years ago, I started to put together a formal training program. And I had a couple of Corrections Canada firearms instructors come through. At that time, they were still even using irons, but they wanted to take the optics program. And I said, well, I've got this thing that I'm working on. A couple of police services that were interested. So they sent a couple of police officers. And I took them out in the range. And we went through the whole gamut that I put together on, you know, everything from what an optic is, what it does, how to properly mount, the pros, the cons, this and that. And it was a four-day course. And when they were done, they're like, can you do this again? It's like, uh, and now this is what we do at work. Can you kind of show us maybe the optic we should be using or so on? So it went down that road for a while. And as time went on, I just kept adding to the program, deleting where I thought wasn't relevant, and then making it current. It just caught on. Then they were like, okay, we definitely need a book. So I just threw a book. This I don't want to say I threw it the book together. But I wanted to put a book together for the masses that would be just the basics, not so much the OTOP program that I'm working on now that I put out for the new book, but the one that you currently have that's out on the market. So this first little book was just that, is to get the basic information out to everyone, that anyone that wants to participate in the shooting sports that's running with any type of firearm site, whether it's an iron sight, an optic that's variable, magnified optic or red dot, you name it. If it, I don't care if it's on a potato gun. If it's got to be adjusted to put your your round where it needs to go, uh, then the book would help you out. And that was the idea. So I look back at it now, and it was a good start. And I hope it helps uh, people get involved and in, in sort out, you know, the problems that they have on the range. The one thing that criteria that I wanted to keep was make it very affordable, make it very small, but most importantly, make it simple language just like you and i are speaking today i didn't want to talk about galileo and the stars and all that kind of you know all that kind of bs i just wanted to have it so that wherever you open the page up there was something that you could do on the range that you could learn from and and then you know you can practice questions and and kind of guide you through it so that was the idea of the whole book and it's been out for i don't know four or five years now so it's still doing very well yeah no like i said before uh when you and i were talking i I just read it, and it was funny. I, I, I picked it up. I had ordered it. It showed up, and I, I picked it up, and I read the introduction, and I put it down, and then I picked it up a couple of days later, and I, I just I didn't put it down till I got to the last page. Like you said, it, it definitely, you know, it's great. It, it covers all the basics. It's really simple to read, and it's it's not in jargon that, you know, the typical guy like myself or, or a lot of guys who want to get into shooting or want to learn a little bit more about shooting and how the basics of a scope and, and a rifle work. It covers all of them, in it, and it's simple to read. Mm-hmm. Well, for the price of it, the idea was keep it cheap, you know, and have it so that it's less than a box of ammunition. So in my mind, if you were to pick up the book and you bought ammo, um, and, or I should say if you didn't have the book and you went out and you weren't experienced that way, you're going to burn more ammo up. So the book would pay for itself the first time you went to the range. Yeah. Uh, because once you figure things out, and it's very simple. Uh, you're not blowing through two boxes of ammo to sight in an, uh, a rifle for the first time. You've already got the principles down, and you're making these shot corrections, and from there you need to work on the marksmanship skills. So, And, you know, that's what it was meant to be. It was meant to be very simple, straightforward, 
and answer the questions and get people off on the right foot. And uh, yeah, well, and it, de- it, it definitely it does, does that. that. Yeah, no, it definitely does that. And and that's the thing is, you know, when guys go to spy scopes, you know, there's just so many scopes out there, and then you're talking to guys and they use terms like MOA and MRAD and parallax adjustment, first and second focal plane, objective lens, you know, it can be overwhelming for the typical weekend hunter or guys that just want to get into shooting. So this book definitely, it breaks it down and explains all those, you know, easy to read, but it's short and it's to the point. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get it too detailed on what exactly they are or why they're important. And, uh, kind of just gives everybody the basics, basic knowledge that they need to getting into shooting. And I think if you're looking at buying a scope or, or getting into shooting, they should definitely pick up the book beforehand and then make their decision on what kind of scope and rifle works for them. Can you kind of just uh, break down how a scope works, you know, what's going on inside and, and kind of why it's important? Uh, a scope is actually a fairly simple device on the concept of how it works, but in the in the end, it's a very complex tool. But the theory on how it works is, is quite straightforward. So we look at the outer tube itself and we the tube size Inside the tube itself, the construction of the tube is actually basically, if you were to think, a tube within a tube. So there's a smaller tube inside, and that smaller tube moves freely around inside the the outer tube. So that inner tube, we refer to that as the erector tube assembly. And in that smaller tube inside, that's what holds your reticle in place. So if you want your your point of impact on the target, your bullet, uh, your bullet to move, your bullet uh, impact on the target to move, you need to move that reticle so that erector tube assembly floats around in there. And it's held under tension by a spring, usually sitting about the 7 o'clock position that puts some tension on it. And then you have two screws, one coming from the top and one coming from the side, from the right, usually from the right. And that's the elevation and the windage correction dial, or the turret. We refer to them as turrets. So by turning the turret elevation in the, uh, for instance, you want to turn it to the downwards position. If I'm turning it downwards, screwing it down, it's moving the erector tube assembly inside the tube. So with elevation, if you think about moving that reticle inside the scope tube up and down by using the elevation turret, uh, the turret actually indicates on the exterior as you're turning it what direction to move it. So if you move it in the upwards direction, that's what the direction your bullet will actually impact the target. But in reality, inside the scope, the reticle is moving in the opposite direction. So if we think about even shooting a, a rifle with a handgun or, or a, an iron sight rifle, that if you need your point of impact on your target, your bullet to be move, raised up on the target, you just simply raise the bore of the rifle and it will impact. So with a scope, as you're adding elevation, your reticle is actually dropping inside the tube in the erector tube assembly. So that means that you have to raise the scope up and, and that raises the bore of the firearm. So it compensates. And uh, that's basically how it works. It's just going to move your reticle. I'm uh, sorry, your, tur- your turrets will move that erector tube assembly freely around inside the scope tube. And that's how we, we move our point of impact. Uh, we have a magnified optic. So with the magnified optic, it, it does just that. It magnifies an object that you're looking at. It doesn't make your target uh, look bigger. It just makes the target seem closer, so closer or further away. And that's a misconception is people think, oh, my target looks larger. No, it just it's seeming like it, it's looking closer. Right. And when as it gets closer, it looks larger. So that's what with the magnified optic. So with that in the turrets, um, that's basically how a scope functions. And then we have different styles of reticles. And 
and we have different styles of correction. We have two different methods that we use for making a shot correction, an angular unit of measurement. Uh, so it, it just continues to, um, I should say, like the, the angular units of measurement, minute of angle, like you mentioned earlier, and then no radians are referred to as mils or MRADs. It does exactly the same thing as MOA, minute of angle. It's just a unit of measurement to make a shot correction or to measure something with. Um, they're just, they do exactly the same thing. They're just two, two different units. Yeah, myself, I've never used the, the MRAD. All my scopes have always been MOA, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with that. I know a lot of guys have asked me before, and, and I hear a lot of guys talking about um, first and second focal plane. Can you kind of touch on that? Just explain you know, what the difference between a first focal plane scope is compared to a second focal plane scope? Yeah, absolutely. That's probably one of my biggest questions I get asked on, uh, on a daily basis, and it's just the same thing over and over again. So it's quite it's quite easy if you just kind of picture it. The, the optic right now that you're running typically uh, as a hunter most likely is going to be a second focal plane. So by saying that, it just means that the reticle, when it's inside that erector tube that's sitting inside the actual scope itself, the look, it's just t- basically telling you where it's located within the scope. So a second focal plane has the reticle located just in front of the magnification ring. And how that works is when you turn your magnification up and down to the highest or the lowest setting, your reticle stays the same size. What happens is because you are making the target seem closer and further away as you change your magnification, it just looks like it's getting, it's the little hash marks or the indications or the reference lines on your reticle. It just, it changes as the target gets closer or further away from you in relation to it. So your typical hunting scope that you're working with right now for the most part is going to be a second focal plane. So again, the scope, reticle stays the same size no matter what uh, what magnification you're on. On a first focal plane, the location of the reticle is, is forward. It's actually just uh, down by the actual tur- housing where the turrets are. And that is a little different because what happens is when you turn your magnification down and up, the reticle changes in size. But it changes in size in relation to the actual target image. So really with a first focal plane, if you turn your magnification down to the lowest setting, your reticle can actually be very, very small, almost to the point where you're not even going to be able to see the numbers on the on the stadia lines or on the reticle. Uh, and in some cases, you might not even see the center of the reticle itself because it's so small if you're down onto a one power magnified optic. But when you turn it up to the highest power, then the reticle becomes extremely large and of course, the target image look seems like it's closer. Where this, where the first and second focal plane shine is that in a first focal plane, what we're looking for is to use the reticle as a tape measure. And even in a second focal plane, if everyone's listening to this, just think of this as your your reticle as a tape measure, makeshift tape measure that you're going to use to either make a shot correction, which is the most common use for it, or you're going to use it to measure an object or a target size. So to use your second focal plane optic to make it the same as the first focal plane, what we can do is we can temporarily use it for measurement as well. So with the first focal, I don't want to jump back and forth here, but on a second focal plane, if you turn your magnification to the exact setting or prescribed setting by the manufacturer, then the reticle is considered to read true, meaning all of the lines on your reticle have a, a value, whether they're minute of angle value or they're mill radian value, and then you can get an actual reading. So if you wanted to measure such as, you know, the antler spread on a deer and a whitetail, 
across a farmer's field, you could turn your second focal plane off magnification to a setting that's prescribed by the manufacturer and it will read true. And then you could actually get the actual measurement. With a first focal plane, it doesn't matter what magnification setting it's on. It's all the reticle will always read true and subtend equally to the target image. So whether you're on a number one power or a number 10 power, uh, it doesn't matter. You can use that tape, that reticle as a tape measure to do a shot correction or to measure an object. Um, For the, for the most part, as a hunter, second focal plane is still the way to go because as a hunter, you're most likely want to keep your magnification on the lowest setting as possible because we want to have a large field of view. And then if we need to find the, the object very quickly, the target image very quickly, we pull up, we can see it. From there, you would add your magnification, and the chances are you're going to actually either dial your elevation or you will hold your elevation. And if you hold your elevation on a second focal plane, it's imperative that the magnification is set to that specific setting. So if you were sh- the example would be if you're shooting a bullet drop compensating reticle, which is very popular with hunters, in a second focal plane optic, to use that as a holdover device, say if you're shooting your zeroed at 100, but you have a deer at 300 and you need four and a half minutes, for instance, you would have to turn your magnification ring to that prescribed setting that we spoke about right now. And then you would pick that corresponding hash mark on your reticle that's going to put your, your, your bullet impacting at that distance. If you didn't have that magnification at that certain spot, that sweet spot, then when you went to pick that reticle holdover, it would either be a, a most likely a miss or your bullet's going to impact the target not where you want it to be because it's not reading accurate. Okay. And uh, guys and girls need to watch for that. Yeah. Uh, it seems like more and more people are on the crave that i got to have a first focal plane. And then when you start talking and say, look, man, uh, this is where it really shines. Like a first focal plane as a hunter, uh, we do a lot. We, we sponsor a lot of shows and I deal with a lot of our, our hosts and when we're trying to gear them up in there, I said, well, do I need a first or a second? And we start looking at where they're going to be hunting, what the, what application they're going to be using for, uh, the landscape, just starting to paint a picture. It's like, well, man, maybe a first focal plane isn't the ideal one to run with. What if we go with a second focal plane and this is the reasons why, you know, we have a new scope in our lineup. It's the lightweight, it's the light hunter tactical and it allows you to dial with turrets uh, elevation turrets a tactical style of elevation turret but it's in a second focal plane optic because if you're shooting a distance as a hunter you're most likely going to be on your highest setting on the magnification ring so now i can use my reticle as a tape measure and measure my shot correction and then i can apply those shot corrections or whatever i need with using my elevation turret yeah on the scope i use i use say for instance for that goat hunt i use the razor i guess the razor the light model you know the 3 to 15 by 44 it's got the adjustable yeah. turrets on on the top and that's what i did with mine i, I just actually i went to the vortex web page put in my information for that bullet which was super easy that the program they got there makes it super easy and then you, you can also just create an account and keeps all your information for you so that access makes it super easy but anyway i just ranged it uh with my range finding binoculars you know the furies it read 402 i dialed my top turrets in it was 15 clicks in elevation and i just i just held a bit for wind and it was a double long shot on that but again i you know i practiced practiced with those shots and and with that rifle for almost four months in advance. Since you got on that topic, like we have this company now that we're we're kind of in bed with here. It's called uh, Ballistex, and it's here in, in Canada. And, and they're spinning turrets, custom turrets for us. 
So if you have that LHT or you have a Viper, they make all sorts of different types of turrets for us for different models. But if you were to put that information into their computer program that they run, and you can go on our website and vortexcanada.net, and when you visit our website, you can actually click on it. You can put all your parameters in there into their program. And it's it's a really advanced program, and we've heard nothing but good things back from them. And they do a wonderful job spinning out turrets. So whether you want an actual turret that's made that you put on, or they actually make a t- like a turret tape so you can take it off and and that way you're not locked into one specific uh, turret for that for that ammunition for your for your firearm. Oh, so yeah. yeah, check it out. Check it out. I've heard nothing. But I haven't got one personally myself because uh, I always just run strictly from the turrets that with minutes of angle or MRADs. But if you're looking to have a custom turret spun that actually is made up in yardage, whether it's meters or yards, then you can just dial the exact. If it, if it calls for 400, you're going to turn to 400 uh, on the turret and let them have it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. One thing you touched on was tube size. Now, I I know a lot of people and, and friends and have this discussion that the bigger the tube size, the more light it's gonna the scope's gonna allow. Can you just kind of just touch on what the benefits of a larger tube size are? Uh, yeah, in this case, size really doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Size doesn't matter with light. So, when it, in regards to size uh, of the tube, no more light will come through the tube, no matter how big the tube is. What is dependent on light transmission? is that the light's got to come through an entry point. And your entry point is at the end of the scope, and that's going to be your objective lens. So the larger of the objective lens, the more light is actually able to come down through that objective lens and then come through the tube. The difference between the tubes, such as a one-inch tube and a, and a 30 millimeter tube, which is kind of becoming the standard, is that the larger the tube, the more internal travel that erector tube assembly I was speaking about. Remember I said it has the reticle in it? Yep. So in a one-inch tube, well, you don't have much room in there. you got very little room for that reticle to move, so you're not going to be able to put on vast amount of elevation or windage correction. But the larger we make that tube, the more internal travel that we can move that erector tube around, and the more room that you're able to move it, the more elevation or windage correction you can apply. So in layman's terms, the, the larger the tube size, usually the more elevation and windage you put on, the further you're going to be able to shoot out right. to your targets. Right. So that's where that comes into. Next, we come into, because scopes today, modern scopes, we do not use steel. We use usually one-piece aluminum, uh, aircraft aluminum. So they are a softer metal than, than steel. So for rigidity, the larger the scope tube, we have the more surface-bearing contact, so the more rigid or stronger the scope is as well. And we're seeing a large shift in uh, not only hunting scope, but obviously in target scope, target shooting, uh, where 30-millimeter tubes are becoming more popular. And they've been very much the standard in Europe for a number of years, uh, but now they've trickled down uh, to North America, and we're seeing that shift. And those are the reasons why we're seeing more and more shooters out there, whether it's hunter or target shooters, but even on the hunter side, they're out there engaging targets at further distances. Our equipment is better. You know, our rifles are better. Our optics are better. Our mounts are better. We have razor, laser range finders so we can get an accurate reading to the target. And more and more people are putting that effort in and getting the experience they needed to put the, those longer shots and be accurate at it. So they're going to want that scope that they can add more elevation and more windage correction. So once again, the tube diameter has no reflection on how much light is going to come through the scope. It's all about movement of your reticle and how much you can dial 
and also it deals with the rigidity of the tube itself. Right. So you mentioned larger objective lens. Now, that's one thing, you know, I think guys are, are have a misconception about is the bigger the objective lens, uh, the bigger the field of view, uh, rather, you know, as opposed to magnification. Can you kind of just uh, clarify that? Yeah, I can do that. And there's actually a relationship between that the two. There's a relationship between the size of the objective lens and the relationship to how much magnification you're on. So if you were to think, uh, let's put this in a term so that the average person can understand and, and be able, if they're looking at a scope with a firearm, they can actually look at this themselves. If you were to take your optic and hold it out at arm's length, and if you were to turn your magnification ring to its largest position, you would see a large black or a large clear light of the circle. That's called the exit pupil. And then you would see haze around it or a black, the black ring. So that's your scope shadow that you're witnessing. And then the, the circle of light that you see is your exit pupil. So that's the light that's coming in. And if you keep it holding it there and now turn your magnification to the lowest setting, you will notice that, uh, correction, let me just go back here. I've got it backwards now that I'm thinking. Uh, so as you turn your magnification to the highest setting, your exit pupil becomes smallest, meaning that the circle of light is becomes the tightest and smallest. As you move it towards the lowest setting, it actually becomes the largest. So that being said, when you're on the lowest end of any magnified variable optic, what will happen is your field of view will extend, meaning that you're going to have a larger field of view to your front uh, and as you turn the magnification up, the field of, field of view becomes much, much uh, shorter. So it's not as great. So that's also in relationship to your objective size. So there's a lot of factors that come into it, but you are correct. A lot of it hinges on magnification. So just remember, when it's on the lowest end, you're going to have the largest field of view. When it's on the highest end, you're going to have the smallest field of view. And as a hunter, that application, once again, when you're done target shooting at the day and you go to put the rifle away, knowing that you're going to take it out for the hunt the, next, the following day or when you get to the, the, the cabinet, always make sure to turn your magnification down to the lowest setting. Yes. Uh, it's, you know, it's just one of those things. You, I always think of it as good housekeeping. Just make sure that you set all your dials, reset your elevation back to zero, your windage is back to zero, slip your scales, whatever you need to do, but make sure everything's back and ready to go. Because as a hunter, you want to be able to throw up the rifle quickly, shoulder it, look down the range. You want to identify the target, see it, then add your magnification, and that's where you need to be. You don't want to be on the highest end with the shortest field of view or narrowest field of view, and then you're kind of moving the rifle around trying to find the target. And yeah. as we know, as a hunter, you might miss that opportunity. Yeah, speaking of that, that's funny because I was out maybe, I don't know, two weeks ago. I had a friend out, and sure enough, we're hiking up this side hill, and a whitetail pops out, a little 3 by 4 whitetail, nice deer, and he couldn't find it in a scope. And then shuffling around, the deer got wind of us, and it took off into the bush. And then when I looked down at his scope, sure enough, he had it set to the highest magnification. And I said, well, you know, that's... That's exactly why you couldn't find it. You have to make sure every day that every time you take that thing out and put it back, you gotta you gotta dial that back down to the lowest magnification. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, and that's good. I think that is good housekeeping rules right across the board. Like as yeah. soon as you're done, put everything back the way it goes, and that way you're ready, ready to rock and roll. And when we think about magnification, uh, you know, and this I was talk about the basics here, which is also covered in the book. The the thing is, 
objective size, yeah, as it gets larger, the more light transmission can come through. But there's so many varying factors in there. You know, we got lens coating. But the the biggest thing is the quality of the lenses. So when we were talking about how much light goes through, depending on the objective size, if I was to take, for instance, in our lineup, we have our entry line is called the Crossfire. And then we have our higher end, we'll say, for instance, it'll be uh, the razor line. So there's there's a vast difference between the two. But if I was to have, for instance, a 50 millimeter uh, objective, both scopes are equal for lens uh, size, same magnification across the board, everything's same. The difference is the lens quality. The 50 millimeter in the razor is going to obviously allow more light transmission because it just has better glass. Now, if I was to take for instance, say your 42 millimeter objective on your Razor LHT, and I was to compare that to a 56 millimeter uh, Hog Hunter in our Crossfire line that has a 56 millimeter objective, and I was to look at it and say, well, hey, 56 millimeter objective on the Crossfire is going to let more light in than the 42 millimeter Razor. That's not true. And the reason being, even though the objective lens is smaller on the Razor, the razor has better glass quality that's allowing more true light to come through to the eye. So you can drop an objective size, but you need to improve on the light transmission or the quality of the lens. Right, that's a, a good much point. Clearer picture. Yeah, that's a good point. So, I had a question so, for you while we're talking about the razor. What's the difference? I noticed you guys have a new lineup called the UHD. What's the difference between the razor and the razor UHD? Is it just the glass, or is there any any noticeable differences? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll stick kind of keep it to the glass quality. So when we go to like the razor 1042s and a bino, it's like one of my favorite binos of all time, and I I, I hunt those around all the time, even in the tracker, especially when I'm out there hunting. Uh, they're just a really nice size. They're kind of like a general general bino. Uh, for size, but the quality is just phenomenal. Like, you know, like Stevie Wonder can look through these things. Yeah, and see. I, so they're I just ha- phenomenal. Yeah, I use those as well. I have the Furies, and, man, you know, with those Razors 10x42s, I use those for everything. I just love those. They're just, they're small, and they're just, they're crystal clear. My my cousin has a set of um, Swarovskis, and I tell you, they're, they're comparable to the Swarovskis, and, you know, he paid... I think forty five hundred dollars for the Swaskis. Um, I mean, the the razors they're not they're not cheap, but I mean, man, it's you know it's just like it's just like looking with your eyes open how clear they are. Oh, absolutely! And then you jump onto a pair of UHDs, like, and then you think at the razor, how much better can this possibly be? And then you put up a pair of those next to it, and it's like, oh my god, like uh, where where do we go from here? Yeah, that's so, what I was afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your wife is gonna thank me for this. Like, hey, we gotta go buy another pair of binos. Yeah. But you know, when we think about our products, um, I'm not a salesman for Vortex. Uh, I'm I'm obviously drinking the the Vortex Kool Aid uh, for sure, just simply because I know the company. I know what's involved with it and how they really care about the product being something that we can use in the field. The people at Vortex uh, that develop this pro these these products. They come from a line of shooters. The the people that work there, they shoot. They're not there. Uh, they hunt. They target shoot. They're competitive. They're retired law enforcement, retired military. They know what works. And so when they get behind a pair of binos, and if they see something that we put out in a product that's new, and they say, hey, we need to maybe work on this to make it a little better. We're not quite happy. That's rectified immediately. Like, And then you as a consumer, if you have a question or you have a product idea, a way to make, make it better, we want to hear from you. That's what's making our product what it is today is 
we actually listen to you. And yeah. no one knows better than the person in the field using it. So um, yeah. there's one thing to have someone that's able to make a really nice pair of vinyls or a really great looking scope. But if you have someone that uses it in the field and, and the designers don't use it in the field, they just don't really grasp what the important parts really there, what they need to improve on. So we get that all the time because we're the number one, number one selling optics manufacturers in the world worldwide. And so it's coming from all over the place. People have great ideas and it's passed on and we implement it. Like the, that's the beautiful thing about Vortex. It's not a monopoly of companies. It's a family owned company in the U S by the Hamiltons. And, you know, we've sat down many times with Dan and Margie and their kids and, and, you know, that that's the great thing is if you have an idea and I pitch and I pitch it forward, it doesn't go on deaf ears. They actually take it to heart and they put it forth and if something can be made to make that happen, then they do their best to make it happen. Yeah, no, they definitely go the extra mile. Uh story about um I think a couple of years ago when I bought those Furies when they first came out and I bought them at the end of the one season and I had them throughout the, the winter time and my my kid got a hold of him and he ripped the button off him. So, and I didn't notice. He just put him back, kind of stuck the button on there, so I wouldn't get mad and put him put him back where he found him. And then about six weeks before our spring bear opened, and I started talking about our bear hunt, I noticed that the button wasn't attached, and I I just couldn't get it to work, and they weren't working. So I sent him back to Vortex. They filled out the VIP warranty, sent him back to Vortex. It took about four weeks, and then they came back, and then I got them, and uh, I checked them out, and it was still doing the same thing. It just it wouldn't work. So I went online, I looked through the contact information, and then I called up, and I explained what was going on. I said, okay, well, uh, you could send them back to us, and then we're, we're going to have another look. And I said, well, you know what? I'm leaving here in about uh, eight or nine days to go on this bear hunt that we had planned. Uh, I can't, I can't wait another another four weeks. And I can't remember who I was talking to, but somebody in your warranty department. And, and you know, he just said, "Okay, I'll tell you what. Put those things in a box. We'll take a picture of the shipping label, email it to me, just proving that you know the the binos are in the box and you're shipping it out. This is the shipping number. This is the, or shipping label. This is the tracking number." And uh, we're going to ship you out a brand new set. And uh, I think it was five or six days later, I got the brand new set of the upgraded Fury HD binoculars. And I went my trip. And, yeah, I mean, that just goes to show you the, the, the kind of customer service you can expect through Vortex. It's pretty legendary. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our guys and girls at the office are phenomenal. That would have been uh, Daryl that you spoke with. He's a, he's really a rock star for us. Uh, he's kind of my right-hand man. He's uh, He's come such a long ways, and he's just a wealth of knowledge. But, he, he's a pleaser. He's just one of those guys that want to make sure, make you really happy. And, and that's, and that's basically it with the VIP program. Uh, that's what we want to do. Now in that, in that example that you gave for us, uh, here on, on the podcast, well, that's not the norm. We usually don't do that. That's not our standard uh, SOP, like how we operate. We want to get the unit back and assess it and then, and then go from there. But yeah, yeah we'll, we'll jump, we'll jump over the moon to try to help you out to make you happy. Um, oh, no, yeah, exactly. And I think to that, that point, that's. Yeah, and I think to that point, um, you know, with that certain situation, I already had sent them back once, and our conversation was the first time was that if um, if we can't get it, if it's still happening, then it's going to end up being an internal issue, and we're probably just going to have to send you a new set anyway. So, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't want I don't want everyone to to expect uh, if they send their their Vortex gear and that they're going to get a brand new set. So, just to clarify yeah, that no, for it, sure. Well, but touching base on that, the really cool thing now is, uh, to a couple of years ago, um, we do everything in-house now in Guelph. We don't need to ship any. Well, that's not true. We have a couple of things that we may need to ship down, but that's soon to be rectified, and we'll do everything in-house. But 
I'd say 99% of everything that comes to the door that needs to be either repaired on or, or re- do a repair or whatever we need to assess it is done in-house. So any repairs we need for the most part is going to be done in-house and we can get it back to you as quick as possible. So we don't have that big lag in time uh, right. for, you know, to have you. Uh, I, I don't want to give an average time to turn around for scopes, but uh, we have one one fella, Jeff, is our rifle scope repair tech, um, and we'd be lost without him right now because he's just phenomenal at what he does. And he's able to, when it comes across, if he's got parts for it, he's got it in it, he's he's repairing it. And those people listening to this, when, when we get a, a scope, for instance, when the scope comes back to us and it's assessed and we repair it, if it can be repaired, um, what we'll do is, or Jeff will do, he'll put it through a series of tests. So he just doesn't, uh, if it comes back and it's got a scratch on the lens, he just doesn't repair the lens and chucks it in a box. He goes through it thoroughly. He's like, extremely anal on all the little little uh, individual parts. So he wants to make sure everything is perfect for you. And then when he puts it back in the box. So when you get it out of the box, you know this has been tested up the Yazoo and it's going to run. If it doesn't run after you've mounted it and you've got a problem, then that comes back to the number one issue that every scope manufacturer faces is mounting. It's usually user error and it's on the installation. And it usually comes down to over torquing, over tightening the rings. But for the most part, once we get it, we'll look after you. Um, rifle scopes, spotting scopes, anything that's got our name on it. Uh, with Vortex, we're not going to nickel and dime you. And our warranty is based when I explain it. You know, we used to give a long speech on the VIP warranty. But I've just shortened it up to say, look, man, as long as you don't lose the item, uh, we got you covered. If you, well, just last month I had a guy call me and tell me that his buddy was helping chip wood and they were talking by the tractor and he was out and they put the range finder up because they were doing some target shooting during a break and he left it on the wood chipper and it actually got pushed into the wood chipper. And he's like, well, what do I do? It's like, well, gather up whatever you possibly can. Uh, and if I can tell that it's somewhat, if it is our product, then you'll get a new you're gonna get a new uh rangefinder. Yeah. So man, that's unreal. We, well, you know, life happens, right? It just happens. We do stupid stuff sometimes in our gear, especially if you've got kids, you know, things yeah. get kind of abused and used. But um for the most part, like I said, we're gonna look after you. We're gonna we're not gonna nickel and dime you. We don't need receipts or any of that kind of stuff. We're really truly the VIP program is our warranty is there to really help you and get you back out. I want to get you running as quickly as possible. Um, if you're down, if you do have a problem with an optic or a piece of gear, we want to get you fixed up because we know that you need to get out there, especially at this time of year. Um, everyone's gunning to get out there to to get out there to go deer hunting, whatever you're doing. You can't afford not to have your gear working. Yeah, so, definitely, definitely. And one thing I think. One thing I like about uh, yeah, one thing I like about what you guys do is that warranty is good for all your products. It's not just just valid for the higher end products, but it's valid for the lower the lower stuff as well. You know, like the crossfire and the diamondbacks. It's all the warranty is the warranty, and it, to me, it's it's pretty amazing that you guys can uh, do that. You know, and some guys they don't have two thousand dollars to spend on a on a Swarovski scope, so three hundred fifty to four hundred dollars for you know a diamondback or a crossfire scope is a lot of money to them. And and for you guys to stand behind your product like that is it's something else well the thing is too like you kind of think of it as it's an investment where you're investing in yourself and, and things are so expensive today and even though we do have just an entry line or crossfire is the entry line into our product line uh we don't consider it to be just an entry level scope we kind of think it's, it's something special and we know it's something special because it performs but if it does go down on you for whatever reason 
um, we're going to get you up running quickly as possible. And it, whatever the price is, whatever wherever you fall within our product, whatever you're spending, we've got you covered. Even on electronic uh, products, um, even tripods, you need if it's got our name on it and our stamp on it, uh, you're good to go. That's where I really try to get people to start thinking in that light. It's like, yeah, man, I know you can't afford. I don't want you to spend the mortgage money on an optic. Like, there's more important things in life than than this. But if you're going to swing for an optic, don't be afraid to throw a couple extra bucks at it and maybe upgrade a little bit because this is an investment. If you go to Walmart to buy a TV for a thousand bucks, you come up to the cash, they give you a 30 day warranty with it, and then they offer you, you know, for 500 bucks, they'll give you a one year warranty. Well, with us. It doesn't matter what you have. It's it's warrantied. It's we're going to stand by it, and we don't want any. We're not going to ask for any additional money to increase the warranty. It is what it is. So whether it's a crossfire or it's a razor, it's the warranty is what it is. It's we're going to stand 100% behind it. And the yeah. beautiful thing is, years years down the road, when your kids are are now inheriting your firearms and your optics. And if they do something and there's and the optic is damaged, we're no longer making that specific um, model, then we'll replace it. We'll replace it with either equivalent or the next level up from it to make it right. So that is the investment, right? You're investing in yourself and we want to give that back. And if there is an issue, we'll make it right with you. So uh-huh. that, And then when you, when you say that to customers, they're like, well, oh, man, maybe I'll just talk to my wife and maybe we can, <laughs> can, yeah. I can actually get myself from the Diamondback, maybe I'll get into the Viper line or vice versa. So Yeah, exactly what you just said. And, and that's one thing, you know, when I purchase these optics and my explanation to my wife is, well, you know, I'm buying it for our kids because they're going to have it forever. So um, as long as Vortex is around, I think they're going to warranty it. Yeah, I don't I don't see it going anywhere, that's for sure. We're, we just keep getting bigger and bigger, and um, we're more invested into the market than ever before. So, yeah. no, we'll be here. We'll yeah. be here. As long as people are throwing lead down range, uh, we'll be we'll be on the market. Yeah. So, man, I, I tell you, I got a, I've got so much stuff that that we could cover, but you know, I've already taken up a lot of your time. Before we uh, we sign off here, I want to talk about the new book. You mentioned you have a new book coming out. Can you just uh, tell us what the new book's about and and kind of and, uh, when we can expect that to be available? Sure, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for asking, Bort. It's been uh, a long time coming. So. During the podcast here, I was just mentioning that I started off about 10 years ago, close to it now, developing an optics training program so that I have something formal to teach, whether it was the law enforcement that came to me or, or civilians, whoever wanted to learn. So I just accumulated all that information and put it together uh, into an actual training program. So it's a dedicated firearms optics training program. And uh, we have numerous uh, law enforcement in the States that are looking at to adopt it. Um, we've got some pretty big names, so we're interested about it. It's never been done before. There's, there's, you know, it's pretty hard not to throw a quarter somewhere or a dime and not hit a good firearms instructor, especially in the States. But up here, we have some great instructors and, and I'm a, I'm a product of that too, because I've taken a lot of different professional firearms courses. And what I found was even though they did a wonderful job teaching marksmanship training program and, and what they need to do on the, on the range, where they lacked that experience was in the optic. And I've had so many different instructors ask me for different, you know, educational products I can give them, such as write, write-ups or handouts, and so they can kind of fill in the blanks where they were a little shaky. So I just took that and ran with it. And when I started teaching this program informally, uh, it was just that. It was just basically uh, pages put together, stapled together, you know, basically teaching it from an overhead projector back in the day or 
um, in a PowerPoint presentation. And then same thing happened, you know, uh, law enforcement services guys are saying, man, can you put this together so we can adopt it as a, as a training manual? And, uh, that's where we're at. So, uh, it's this one here. So for those that are, we've talked about the small little book that I had, uh, the ultimate optics guide and that being my first kick of the cat, this one here, I'm really proud of. I think this is the one that should have been the original book. It takes a lot of the knowledge that I have, uh, 35, 36 years of uh, shooting with optics and I buried it in this book. And the beautiful thing is it's color. It shows you the reasons why you need to do what you need to do. It's not just do this, do that. There's why in each lesson plan. And the book is laid out like a lesson plan. And it's ideal for that you don't have to take a firearms course in optics. So you're not running off and spending a thousand, two thousand dollars to take a week long course. Uh, and plus expenditures on top of that. So this, you pick it up and you can do it at your own time. You sit at your kitchen table, you can sit at your work desk, play hooky from work, wood on the range. Um, and at the end of each lesson plan, there's a range exercise and it shows you what you're doing, how you do it, and the reason why. I'm a big person of wanting to know the reason why. If you teach me how, why I'm doing it and I understand the, re- the concept, and it just makes things much clearer. So yeah, this book here, yeah, it's full colored. It's over 300 pages. Uh, it should have been out a couple of years ago, but we got a delay on it. I had to add some more material, material for it for certain law enforcement uh, services to meet their criteria because they wanted to buy it up. And uh, I just decided, you know, I'm going to put it out there for everybody this time. So I don't want to just have it so law enforcement. I want the average guy that's running uh, a hunting rifle even a lever action or you got a PRS precision rifle shooter that wants to pick up some skills and educate themselves. I want to have it so it's available for everyone. Yeah. No, man, I can't wait to read it. As soon as it comes out, let me know because I'm going to be picking a copy up. For sure. Okay, brother. Well, uh, on that note, I want to thank you for coming out and I uh, appreciate you spending a bit of time with us today. And I'm sure uh, this conversation we had clarifies a, a lot of questions that that hunters had regarding uh, optics and shooting and and uh, hopefully you'll come out again when uh when your new book comes out and we'll we'll touch base on that yeah that'd be great man i really appreciate uh having me on today and and one last little thing when we talk about in regards to service and for for those people listening is that if you visit our website or, or go to our, our our other website uh actual vortex optics website in the u.s there's oodles and oodles of videos online and there's lots of great information in there. So if you if you don't want to buy the book or you can't buy the book or you can't wait to get it out and you have questions that you need, you can either call Vortex Canada and they'll put me through extension 817 or you can go and check out these videos. And we've made several videos also so over the time. So there's there's information that can help you out. Yeah, cool. Well, there you go, guys. So, But anyway, buddy, I'm going to let you go here. Uh, thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, brother. Much appreciated. Take care. Okay, back to later. Just full blown redneck on these fish. This is like high tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9 30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.